0: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek, and Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars, but what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July, They Shouldn't Have Killed This Dog, The Complete Uncensored, Ass-Kicking Oral History of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the New Age of Action, coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 4.30
1: movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme week's
0: Classic film. From
1: 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance. It's off the
0: charts, but still in reality. for the 4:30 movie. The 4:30 Movie podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. This is Peter Helmstrom. And this is Lisa Clank, And this is the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. When looking at the history of the Star Trek franchise, one can break it down into three or four distinct eras, both delineated by the people in front of the screen and narratives of the story, as well as the creative forces behind the scenes. When looking at the Rick Berman era, which lasted roughly from 1987 to 2005, uh, not just the storylines and the nature of storytelling but also one name comes to mind when looking at what identifies the era one name and one look and that is the name of michael westmore and the look he gave to the alien creatures that appeared on star trek he worked as the makeups he headed up the makeup design department as well as the prosthetic uh, created the look for the aliens and other people on the Star Trek franchise. Michael Westmore, thank you so much for being here today.
1: It's my pleasure. I enjoy talking about it, so (laughs) we can.
0: You know, the first question would be, you uh, come from a a long line of of, uh, Hollywood legends who worked on, Feature films, uh, your grandfather worked uh, did makeup for Douglas Fairbanks on <laughs> the Three Musketeers in the silent movie era. Mm-hmm. Um, my first big question would be just what was that childhood like? <laughs> like, and also what kind of created the spark in you that made you want to follow in your in your family's footsteps?
1: I tell you this is as far as the timing goes in that question, it's it's perfect because when I wrote my memoirs, And I started in 2003 over at Paramount, and I asked my secretary, Valerie, for a pad of paper because I just wanted to start making notes. So I wrote and wrote and wrote, and the first three legal pads that I wrote were about my childhood in the studio. And there just wasn't enough room in, in my book to put any of that into it. So I started at my apprenticeship at Universal, and my book continues from there. But I still had these three pads all tucked away. And a month ago, I pulled them out and started to transcribe them. And I've I've gone through uh, my uncles, uh, not totally yet. I still have a person bud to do, but it's how they touched me growing up. Some of them more so than, than others. Uh, and it's it's about a page or page and a half. And I'm not, because my uncle Frank wrote a book called The West Mars of Hollywood that came out back in uh, like 1976. And uh, I, I didn't want to touch on information that Frank had in his book because it's it's a, a great read all by itself. And I, uh, I I started just thinking in my mind, and it's amazing. You're talking about being 10 years old and remember going to the circus. With mm-hmm. my uncle and buying me a lizard that I could pin on my shirt and stuffed monkey and the cotton candy, uh, and and going into which uh, a, a, a term probably is yes, no, the freak tent, of which that's what it was called. And um, just recently, I was talking with Sid Croft of the Croft Brothers. They're famous for all their morning shows that they did for children. And Sid was a puppeteer in the circus at 15 years old, and he performed in the freak Freak Tent. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and Sid and I have spent hours just discussing it because he was there at a time when I was going to the Ringling Circus with my uncle. So I must have seen him. Of course, the things I remember is the alligator man and the, the tallest man in the world. But he was he was advertised as the youngest puppeteer in the world and had one of those great big panels that uh, hung outside the tent and his was the second over and other people that, uh, that were in the tent uh, didn't like him because he was getting billing over everybody else. So. Huh. But that was it. Was interesting that we just talked. In fact, I wrote uh, one of the. I had to stop writing about my uncles to write about Sid, because we had talked so much about it, and I started taking notes. But uh, so that's what uh, I, I have been doing now: is going back and and not only reading my old notes, but adding more things all of a sudden come to mind. Now I can't tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday, but these things here. But now these stories are 70 to 80 years old and I'm remembering it's still drawing up in my mind. In fact, when I started uh, a month ago, I said, you know, I better start doing this before I <laughs> start forgetting these. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's it's just fascinating to me to remember, if you remember, a, a, an actor called Jan, John Caradine, uh, David Caradine. Uh, they were my neighbors growing up, and playing with David, and then meeting him thirty years later, and doing a movie with him, and things. So there's so much intertwining going on between my youth and my my career, you know, as as it unfolded over the last sixty years.
0: Did you ever con- consider doing something conventional, like becoming a lawyer, or was it always in no. your blood to go into entertainment?
1: Uh, it was no, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I was going to the University of California, Santa Barbara, which was a teachers' college then, and I thought it would be fun to be an art teacher. So I, I finally one day came along when we had to go and do student teaching and watching them, and I'm thinking, oh my god, every kid in the school that gets in trouble. Why is it getting thrown in the art class? And, <laughs> and then you talk to teachers, and, and I did teach for a while. In fact, the last class I taught at Los Angeles Valley College, uh, and, and a number of my students along the way became professional makeup artists, but I had a class where no one wasn't wasn't so enthusiastic to go on to have it as a profession that it was... It was, a, it was a little depressing, and I, I, I quit teaching after that because I did it for 10 years, and I wrote a book at the end of that on called The Art of Theatrical Makeup for Stage and Screen. But um, I, I just started thinking of directions I wanted to go in, and I took an art history class, and I, I loved it. It was a class that I literally was getting like a D in. Mm-hmm. Uh, admit to they. They only gave the teacher only gave three grades, and I got a D. And I thought, oh my god, I, you know what's what's wrong? And so I, I got an A on the final. I studied so hard and was so interested into it that uh, uh, he gave me an A in the class. And I totally changed my major from teaching into art history. And I was literally planning on going into either archaeology, which I had as a minor then. Either that, because we had a lot of digs in Indian uh, little spots in in Santa Barbara, the Chumash Indians were all through that area. That uh, I, I, that's what I was planning on doing, till one day in my junior year, phone rang, and it was my uncle Bud, who was the head supervisor at Universal. Bud was the one that came up with uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon and. Uh, Francis the Mule and uh, This Island Earth. And there, was, there was a number of uh, sci-fi movies that Universal uh, was known for. Uh, a lot of the Abbott Costello ones. But anyways, Bud said that an apprenticeship opened up. An apprenticeship was a three-year study at the studio with professional makeup artists. At the end of that time, you had a three-day exam to take. If you pass the exam, you can become a, uh, a full-fledged makeup artist. So I thought about it, and I was a junior when this happened. Called him back and said, you know, nobody in the family has ever graduated from college. So I want to stay here and graduate. And uh, so I'm basically turning turning him down. He says, "Uh, well, I'll tell you, if you will accept it in a year's time when you graduate, I will keep it open for you. And I thought, hmm, well, I'm kind of kind of tired of studying anyways. I'll go <laughs> and I'll try it, see what it's like. And if I, you know if I don't like it, uh, I, I was thinking about going to Berkeley, to do graduate work and in, in art history, and I got there, and I really enjoyed it. It's like I spent the first six months learning beauty makeup, if you remember the name Sandra D. I watch my Uncle Bud make up Sandra D every morning. I would bring her coffee and, you know, watch what he was putting the lipstick on on the foundation and doing her eyebrows and everything. And Sandy and I became pretty good friends. And uh, it, it uh, he said, you know, now it's time for you to practice. So I would get secretaries and people around, and I'd say, well, come on over at lunchtime and let me practice makeup on you. So I practiced beauty makeup for... Uh, six months, and that was all. Just concentrated on it on, on how to make a good eyebrow, how to make good lips, how to a, a whole face. Well, what that led me to in later years, I was I was Elizabeth Taylor's personal makeup artist for several years, um, and then John Chambers, who was uh, a technical makeup artist, who was at CBS, came to Universal to do a movie called The List of Adrian Messenger, which at that time was the most expensive prosthetic movie until Planet of the Apes was made and then Planet of the Apes, you know, eclipsed it. But um, yeah. for anybody, that John was portrayed in the movie Argo. He was responsible for uh, literally being part of the best CIA background to create a false studio and movie that they thought was going to go over there in film, and it wasn't. It was a way of getting the, uh, the the embassy people that were trapped to get them out. So John was was famous for that, but also famous for getting an Oscar for *Planet of the Apes*. And I I was his first uh, basically apprentice, and uh, I learned all my early background of mold making and latex making and sculpting. Also that we had a sculptor up there that was the man that sculpted the creature from the black lagoon. And he, he taught me how to sculpt. And we had another man by the name of Elmer Lund, who was a mold maker and he taught me how to make molds. So aside from my learning beauty makeup, I was learning prosthetic makeup at the same time. To this day, I don't, I can't think of another makeup artist who has the background I did. People have had to specialize. They do beauty makeup or they do, you know, monster makeup and prosthetic makeup, but you don't do both of them because there's no time to learn that. I had time to learn it because I was getting $75 a week to learn all this and it, uh, from there, it came to making beards for six months. I did nothing but lay hair on a fake head and then take it to a makeup artist and say, well, how do you like this? And then they would say, well, it needs a more blending. It should be thinner here." So I'd go back and after time, after six months of doing it, you you could make a beautiful beard if you just, of course, I had an art background too. to uh, and, and we were able to take the beard off of this head form with a little acetone and you could actually glue it on somebody else. Um, It was, uh, it was an amazing time. Anyways, I took my exams. I passed and I, my first job was working on McHale's Navy, uh, which was fun to do. I knew all of the guys that were there. I was, you know, made up everybody, but Borgnine, nine, uh, who was the captain, he was my priority that I had to get ready in the morning. Um, and, and from there, I went on to uh, s- several shows, The Munsters. And my job was doing Eddie Munster and uh, his and the daughter in the uh, show, the one that played Marilyn. My uncle my uncle uh, Purse did Grandpa, and Carl Severa uh, did Herman. But uh, I made Butch up in the morning. And Butch and I are still friends to this day. Um, and the, uh, I have run into them at conventions and things, and we've, we've talked. And, uh, from, uh, from the Munsters, it, I went into uh, Alias Smith & Jones, which was a cowboy show. And then I kind of uh, drifted away from Universal, met the Crofts, uh, Sid and Marty Croft, and went to work for them for a couple of years. Then I got a, got a call from a, a, a little movie, a uh, little boxing movie that it was uh, really low budget, had a, a budget of $1 million. Television shows now, some of these sci-fi television shows, their budgets are $8 million for, for an episode. I've heard it's up to $20 million on uh, some of the, the tip-top ones. There's so many special effects in them. And, um, and that happened to be Stallone in Rocky. You believe that America is the land of opportunity?
0: Although Creed does. And he's going to prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. And that unknown is you. It's the chance of a lifetime.
1: You can't pass it by. Oh, man. He says to me, you weren't born much of a brain, oh you know, so uh, you better start using your body, right? So i become a fighter. How did you come to train in an icebox? I'll break both your arms so they don't work for you. Rocky. His whole life was a million to one shot. And I would say that when that hit the market, and Michael Westmore did it, that really launched me into uh, into my career. And uh, it just continued where I I stayed with Stallone for eight years doing all his films, and uh, and Robert De Niro on Raging Bull, and uh, and then in 1987, I got a call from David Livingston on Star Trek. And wanted to know if uh, I, I was uh, interested in, in coming in for an interview with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, they had been interviewing makeup artists for quite a while, and got to the point that, that they were asking them because none of these people made appliances, and they were asking them who would you go to to uh, build, you know, the special effects. And my name kept coming up, so David Livingston thought, "Why don't we just call him and see if he's interested?" So they called me and uh, I went over for an interview on a Thursday and I took my book with me that had all these photographs of the different movies that I had done and, and the awards. And by that time, I had also won my Oscar for uh, the movie Mask, not the mask, but mask for the boy with a distorted face and Cher. And uh, I told him after our interview, it was fine, wonderful. And, uh, it, it, it's strange because I had a meeting with Whoopi Goldberg. Of course, Whoopi wound up being in Next Generation, but I made some uh, teeth for her for a one-woman show that she was doing. And I said, no, I'll be home in the afternoon. If uh, you know, if you're interested, give me a call." And I, I, I never set my heart on Why? I hope I get it. I hope I get it. You know, uh, if I do, wonderful. And if I don't, because I've had, I've had my ups and I've had my downs, even you know, through my career. And uh, got home and there was a message on the telephone that said, uh, if you want the job, it's yours. And so I called him back and said, well, you know, I'd like to think about it though. And I told my wife, you know, uh, you know it's, it's Star Trek. It only lasted two years. So why don't I just go ahead and do that? And then I'll go back on the road with the movies and things. So I uh, called him back and said, oh, okay. And I said, well, you got to make up your mind Right away, because we start filming on Monday. It, it had gone that long. And so we started doing data tests on on Monday. And uh, 18 years later, <laughs> we were still going, which was amazing. And everybody, I'm one of the few that started in the beginning. And I think there were 20 of us. And there is a photograph somewhere. I probably have one somewhere. It's the 20 of us got together near the end and had a picture all taken together. And Rick Berman was one of them too, one of the first people I met.
0: So were you responsible for designing Data's
1: look? Good evening, Commander Data. Captain, is there any word yet on the missing fragment? The computer is processing the data. I will be notified as soon as there is any information. (sighs) Commander. Your reputation for physical strength is known even in the Klingon Empire. You are familiar with the Bahat Kul challenge? I am familiar with many Klingon rituals, including the Bahat Kul. Uh, Wa! Cha. Way. More talk! <laughs> <laughs> My upper spinal support is a poly-alloy designed to withstand extreme stress. My skull is composed of cortonide and
0: uranium. I understand your intellectual prowess is equally impressive. If I were to learn of the results from the computer search before the others, the Klingon Empire would have a strategic advantage. A being of your abilities
1: would go far in the Empire. You were attempting to bribe me. Not at all. You suggested a plan that would work to your advantage. One that I would be capable of executing. You then implied a reward. Clearly you were... Commander! Commander! Never mind. Yes. In fact, Gene wanted to make him either bubblegum pink or gray. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. You know, it's it's just, uh, he can write, but he wasn't good at making decisions on color. <laughs> so I told him, I says, you know, we're him bubblegum pink. He's going to look like uh, uh some doll, some rubber plastic-headed doll. And gray is a color I would really like to keep for bad people, not to put it on something like data. So we literally tried, I, I, it might have been like over 20 colors, different colors on tests. And and my, he turned out to be my favorite color, which was a combination of white gold and yellow gold powder that I would mix uh, three to one. And then uh, I had to, you know, block his eyebrows out. Uh, he, he had a, a very thin hairline. So his hairline here, which a lot of people thought was a wig. I literally took a brown and a black pencil and went like this with it, sharp strokes, uh, little strokes. And I did his entire hairline and then laid the sideburns on and uh, Brent would put in his contact lenses and I would do his hands and his neck and his ears, found a color in uh, a water-based makeup like a Max Factor pancake, uh, but it was, a, it was a Krylon was the brand, uh, number 522 it happened to be, <laughs> and uh, painted all the things where the grease makeup and then at night Brent cleaned him, took his lenses out, cleaned himself up, I never had to do it, but uh, it, it was interesting because it would reflect colors. If he got near uh, flashing red lights, he would, he would turn red. In fact, one of the toy makers was given a picture of him standing near one of those lights, and he was kind of reddish pink. And when they painted, because uh, Brent gave me the uh, permission to approve his little doll. He didn't want to do it. So, anytime it came out, I would approve the colors and the, the way it was done. And it came in and he was pink. I'm going, <laughs> what the age? <laughs> what are they thinking of? And then we found out they had been sent a photo of him standing there, red alert. So, <laughs> and they changed that quickly. So, all the dolls, if you could have gotten one of those, it would have been a collector's item. I should have kept that one. <laughs> Oh, I I was just
0: going to ask, because your career, as you said, by the time of Next Generation, you've been pretty established in Hollywood. But uh, we're also seeing a time of great change in in your profession. And I'm curious how uh, technological improvements, but also just uh, technique improvements, had, had grown by the time you started that allowed your job to be a bit easier or potentially even more difficult.
1: You know, not a lot changed. I'll tell you the biggest thing that changed was adhesives. When we started the show, the only adhesive we had was spirit gum. And when you put spirit gum on a woman, we would have never had all the wonderful makeups on women uh, using spirit gum. Their faces couldn't have taken it. Uh, A silicone was in a silicone based adhesive was invented. Uh, Basically, uh, Dick Smith, who was a very famous makeup artist in New York, developed. It and then one of the companies out here in California started, and it's, it's strange because my son, who was an editor on Deep Space, got so interested in chemistry. I had a five-gallon can of it was called 355, and you could not get a thinner for it anymore because it wasn't toxic, but it was just bad for the atmosphere. Mm. And I gave this can to Michael, and he has redeveloped in his. His makeup, his adhesive now, sells all over the world. And it would have been even a lot easier. The makeup artists are starting to use his stuff now because it's even easier than the stuff was before. Uh, the other thing is a lot of appliances now where we use latex because it was faster. We'd whip up latex in a bowl and pour it into a mold and close it up, put it in an oven, and it would bake at 200 degrees, depending on the size of what it was, anywhere from, say, two hours to five hours uh, to, to vulcanize the rubber. That has changed now where the beautiful makeups that you're seeing that are winning Oscars and television, are uh, winning Emmys, are made out of silicone. More so now than they were when we were doing it. I never changed the silicone because you had, at that time, it was very sensitive and it would like not set up or it would turn gooey uh, and you might lose three or four of them before you get it. I didn't have time. We went so fast all the time. I had to stay with uh, latex, but now these silicone pieces of which are, are, are absolutely gorgeous. And what's interesting about it is that this technique and silicone, was used by the CIA for 20 to 30 years before it ever came to Hollywood. Uh, John Chambers, my mentor, was hired by the CIA, CIA to visit silicone factories all over the United States. And so this was taken to the special lab, Disguise Lab in uh, Washington, where they uh, would make the, the either little pieces or full pullover masks and things for the, the agents around the world. So, things so this only, is like yeah. Mission Impossible yeah. stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what it was wow. like. Wow. I yeah. didn't know that was it, a real thing. It was <laughs> like, in fact, if you've ever seen it, talk about Mission Impossible, uh, the, the story of the Chinese man, uh, there's there's a like, there's this little factory over in Burbank, California, that makes these masks that are so good, you go rob a bank. <laughs> and they never know. You'd go in as an old man and come out and throw your mask in the trash. And uh, you get away with it because <laughs> you are. It is so well done. Wow. And uh, Yeah, you can talk with it, you know, because it can glue down around. I've seen it at some of the conventions uh, where somebody will put one of those on, and walk around, and mm-hmm. now they they aren't detected. The silicone is so good, and if somebody paints it, uh, there's a friend of mine who worked for the CIA who used to do this work there, and. It, it, his work to this day, I think he's the greatest in the world and uh, he's retired now, but uh, it, it, it was masterful because it was even painted from the inside. So it wasn't like paint sitting out here. It's painted inside the silicone mold. So it's just shows through lightly through the skin, whether it be freckles or uh, little veins and things like that. So, yeah, that, that was a big change. In Hollywood, um, going going from rape, rubber to uh, to silicone, and um, some of the brushes got better, a little softer, you know, for doing makeup and things. Um, and and the adhesive, the advancement of the adhesives, uh, the rest of the techniques are all as good as the the talent of the makeup artist, as far as being able to put all those little details into it.
0: Well, I guess the next question off that would be, um, do you have anything that you can identify that like specifically that you um, learned from, from either your parents or your grandparents or, you know, the the people that came before you in your own family that influenced your, your work specifically when it came to Star Trek, even though the techniques had changed and obviously, you know, I mean, Boris Karloff, famously, you know, he had to sit in the chair yeah. for hours and hours and hours just to get that Frankenstein makeup on. But well, technology... That's, that's
1: because of how it was done. Exactly. You know, but was, even so, good. like, yeah. you know,
0: looking, you know, taking what you were doing on Star Trek and looking today and and, and how the, the things from the past really yeah. inspired you and influenced
1: you. I, I, I would say... I can't say it in advance. I'd say from what I learned from Bud uh, with beauty makeup... I carried that through my whole career. That's the uh, techniques of, of how to do eyeliner and mascara and put on eyelashes and lipstick and things like that. Uh, the times changed. All of a sudden, the 70s might change and the 80s might change. But that's just a matter of learning application, of changing an application technique. Um, and from what I learned to John Chambers, I still have my big book. I followed him around for a couple of years Writing everything he ever said to me in a book uh, and and down things. Now those so many of those little things like making a plaster mold is still very similar, but you might find a different release when you're putting two molds together. Different release here. A uh, silicone silicone has become very popular to use because it it doesn't uh, leave a residue on anything, and it it parts very easily. It's just what I learned then. And what I finally had to teach myself over the years. There used to be a science store in Burbank, California, where if I had a problem, I used to be able to call my uncle Pers. Whenever I had a problem, uh, Pers was uh, ran. He was Betty Davis's personal makeup artist, uh, and he did the the lawn uh, the doc not Doctor Jekyll. Wally did Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde at Paramount. The movie with the bell ringer. <laughs> the story oh, of-
0: Hunchback of Notre Dame.
1: Lunchback, yeah, first did the original Hunchback of Notre Dame with uh, the. Lon like, No, not Lon Cheney. Bill. Uh, well, everybody's going to know his name because the movie's been so famous over the years. Uh, and it's, uh, in fact, when I start talking too much and you don't stop me, I forget what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I would say, what? <laughs> what you've learned. Oh, what I've learned, yeah. So I I, I could call Uncle Person. He, he would give me maybe uh, half a dozen different ways of solving the problem, and then I could figure it out myself. And I know the day that he died in the funeral, and all of a sudden I realized I don't have him to call anymore. I'm going to have to figure these things out myself. And so I did. And, you know. And like on Star Trek, to figure out how to... Uh, open up data and put electronics into them. And my son, Michael, was very instrumental. In fact, he built all of the electronics that Data ever had. He built all the, the uh, electronics that went into every boar guy, other alien creatures that we had along the way where it had to have something on them that beeped or blooped or whatever, flashed, uh, Data's daughter, uh, the show when she, opened up Halle Berry, uh, Halle, whatever, uh, opened up her head, and the lights were so strong in the top of her skull that we had to turn them off as soon as they they cut the camera. Is normally you just let them flash because you're going to do take two or take three. Uh, we couldn't do that because they would overheat, and the last thing we wanted was for something to, a bulb to burn out. Although at that time we did that. Uh, Michael was available and I got him to come over to the set and uh, be there in case we had a problem. Then once he became an editor, he was only across the lab, or across the lot there in the editor's uh, bays and I could get him to come over. Uh, and that's, that's another reason why Star Trek looked so great was his contribution. Uh, he, he was a great editor, but his knowledge of those electronics Whenever a script kind of called for something, there was never a doubt we couldn't do it. We would figure out a way to do it. And we did. So, yeah.
0: Given all of the different alien makeups that you had to come up with for all the different Star Treks, where did you find your inspiration?
1: Good question. At the beginning of every year, I would go to the bookstore and buy all the brand new books, whether it was on mammals or dinosaurs or amphibians or microbes. And I had a big library there at Paramount. And my thought was, we're not doing Star Trek. So I can't keep going like we're going here, trying to think up something ingenious every week because you'd burn out. So my plan was to take what people already know and use that as a source. And on many characters, I would combine them. With Michael Dorn and the Klingons, I found the greatest book on dinosaurs. And what it had was a cross-section of their uh, spines. And they were all different. Dinosaurs, All of which was was unlike humans, which are all kind of look very similar, the dinosaurs don't. So if I take cross-section of a dinosaur, I can make up a whole new bony structure for their head. Uh, because I wasn't, I wasn't really thrilled with. Uh, I want to say some of the past designs because that's what they were trying to do then was just. Uh, of course, the, in the, the the first series, they were just painted dark brown, but then they started on the movies to give them some soft, interesting things. But there was nothing I could use, uh, and there were boxes of these things left over, but I couldn't use them because they didn't fit into. I want to say Michael Dorn's first look. And uh, the thought was for Michael Dorn was for him to shave his head, which he had agreed to, and just make up a strip of bone and just glue it on his head. And I said, you know, we can do that, but he's going to go around bald for the next seven years. And I, uh, I said, I'll make a forehead with the whole thing. So this is this whole forehead Michael had. And then once we put that on, you look at it and you go, okay, he looks like a human from here to here. And all of a sudden he has this Klingon from here to here. And can I make a nose? So they said, sure. So I made that nose and I had those in all sizes and uh, lengths and everything. So if some new Klingon came in, we could go to the box and see their large, medium or small, because you never knew that it wasn't, uh, it didn't have to have a whole look of its own. And then when Michael smiled, he had these brilliant white teeth. So I said, what about if I make teeth for him? <laughs> John Chambers used to be a dental technician before he became a makeup artist. And that's one of the things that John taught me in my apprenticeship was how to make teeth. So I literally made every set of teeth ever seen on the show in those 18 years. The Perengi teeth, Armin's was one of the. I want to say the funnest uh, ever, because I needed, with most of the Ferengis, they were just uppers, and we would kind of stain the lower ones. But with Armin, they were they literally interlocked, and I made them just like a dentist would if they were real teeth. I am Quark, son of Keldar, and I have come to answer the challenge of Dagorre, son of whatever. And, uh... He never broke them, but uh, they worked out. The pack lids had big teeth. Um, And, you know, just to give a different look to something, because I was always looking to create an entire character. Not only did we have the face, we could do contact lenses and do things really interesting, and I could do teeth. Uh, I could build, if, the, if Bob Blackman built something open to build something that would go in the chest, I built finger extensions or pads, alien pads, that match their forehead that could be glued onto the backs of their hands. So uh, that was part of the fun of doing Star Trek, was creating an entire alien, not just a, not just a face.
0: You know what you say reminds me of something Jean-Luc said to me when I was doing the autopsy on Joe Brill. It
1: was probably the most puzzling autopsy I've ever performed and the most frustrating because Joe Brill's anatomy was unlike
0: any I'd encountered. And I've run into some unusual specimens. What were your inspirations for the Neelix character?
1: Neelix, uh, they told me with Neelix, they wanted something cute but funny that they could make a dolls out of. It. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay. So I said, "What? What is the? What is something that everybody has enjoyed?" Ah, the Lion King was big. So Neelix is a combination of the warthog and the meerkats, and uh, his whole stripe of hair, the way it went, uh, his eyebrows, his mutton chops his little nose and then we just added spots to it to give it a, a different look and uh, scott wheeler was his personal makeup artist and scott is so good that he just he matched uh, ethan up perfect every day you've never been able to see a day and say oh that doesn't you know he looks different or something it wasn't scott was perfect on it and uh, and and so I don't know if they ever made me dolls out of them, but... Uh,
0: I'm sure they did.
1: Yeah, they were thrilled with, with the look. But I did that with all my characters, just about taking two characters, not one, but two, and combining them. And he's probably one of the greatest examples of it. But the uh, the Herogens, you know, and the Gemadar are all combinations of different animals, or reptiles that, uh, that I, you know, melted together. I wanted to... Most famous, I suppose, or at least the one that
0: um, comes to mind that I would love to know what the inspiration is of would be the Cardassians. Like, where did the inspiration for that come from?
1: The key to holding the Federation
0: is Earth. If there's going to be an organized
1: resistance against us, its birthplace will be there. You could be right. Then our first step is to eradicate its population the only way you can't do that why not because a true victory is to make your enemies see they were wrong to oppose you in the first place to force them to acknowledge your greatness then you kill them only if it's necessary that's great we lived at the time in studio city there was on, on Ventura Boulevard, there was a Thai restaurant that we ate at all the time. And there was an art store next door, a framing store. And going by there one night, there was a giant picture in the window with a woman that had a spoon in the center of her head.
0: Hmm.
1: And I looked at my wife, Marion, and I said, You know, I'm going to use that sometime. <laughs> I started working on Star Trek. I said, It'll come when we'll use it somewhere. So the Cardassians was they were they were lizard-like, they were scaly. And I did a cast of Mark Alimo. And Mark had a neck that was about that long. And it was just in his plaster cast. It's like you could put something up here, but all of a sudden you had this whole human look. Uh and Mark's one of the few people where we actually took and literally from his earlobes to his shoulders were those. Sloping shoulder things. They hired one guy one time who literally had no neck. It was like he had a head. There was <laughs> down like this. So these things went don't you know, really fast, but we had to do it. Uh, Mary Crosby was one of the women were wonderful to do. And then to differentiate, the only difference between the man and the woman was we painted the center of it blue, mm. the center of the spoon blue. And that's where I was able to use my gray color in the <laughs> scales and everything. And they it, all of my uh, makeup artists love doing those because there was so much work to do. them, And there were multiple pieces to it. You had a forehead, you had the earlobes, you had a nose tip. Uh, it was, it was just uh, I, I want to say a fun, fun thing to put together. So when all of a sudden um, deep space nine came along and that was it, you know, In in next gen, we had, Mark Limo came in and then we had a couple. And then all of a sudden I get the first script on Deep Space Nine and it's like 12 Cardassians. What are you talking about? Oh my God. So I had to really, we had to make, you know, sculpt a few more foreheads and uh, shoulders in particular. Because it took uh, a good day to make a pair of shoulders. So it would take, you know, maybe 10, 12 days. To make enough, so we had to make multiple moles and be able to squirt it out. So, and that happened with a lot of a lot of the other the characters that they would uh, uh, throw a batch of them at me, like Romulans or Vulcans or something. But that was easy because by that time we had made so many different sized ears that I could fit anywhere from a little kid to uh, the, the, the man that except the man that played Spock's father his ears his real natural ears were so big that there was no uh no size in a box that would fit him so it, those had to be personally done for him and then they never fit anybody else you know that that does bring up another question though is like
0: your um so often your your design work would be you know, as you just described with me, it looks like it's, it's, you design it, it's, it's great, it's, per- and there it is. And you see, it's just, that's the way it will be forevermore. But there's occasional circumstances where you refine it as episodes go on and, and yes. you kind of uh, hone it in a bit more. Yep. I wonder, like, if you could talk a bit about why some of those decisions were made. Cardassians, I think, had first they had kind of a headpiece going on to them, but also Odo changed a little bit as time went on. And uh, you know, if you could talk a bit about how the evolution of some of these these
1: okay, Odo never changed. That was uh, we we tested pieces, but the skin between the pieces was so wrinkly (laughs) that um, we had to make one face, Um, and it. uh, we'd have to make new molds now, now and then uh, every year or something, but the actual basics of his makeup never changed. Like mm-hmm. Dana's makeup never changed uh, uh, ever, except the hairline might've gotten a little further back on him. So he didn't want to keep penciling it if he had like mine, you know, this far back. Uh, some of them did change though. I know you're, you're, you're right that we would, uh, maybe blend the colors a little bit more or add a little bit of something to it or a few more spots or something like that, but never trying, unless you can think of an example of one.
0: Uh, no, I, I suppose I'd have spent in the way that like, not so much drastic changes, but, but yeah. more subtle, like in the way that Odo in the pilot um, isn't quite as smooth, has a bit more definition to them. And then, by the second season and into the third season, it's like it's a very sleek kind of.
1: Uh, it was all one mask, all one piece. Interesting. And mm-hmm. the ears were too. The ears were. I mean, you had that and the and the whole mask literally went down. Just the only thing that was open was his eyes, yeah, and his mouth. And uh, Dean Jones was doing it, and the, the mouth would be glued right to uh, his his upper lip. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way we could do it to give his whole face the, a smooth
0: look yeah yeah well then follow-up question then because i think for so many of the listeners out there like they don't it's hard for them to think like just how much work you must have put in for 18 years of your life if you could just describe a bit of your work day like what was that like not just working on the next generation or one series at a time but you were often working on two sometimes even three series at one time and
1: it was two in a movie
0: Yeah. And then, of course, the movies as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. I didn't have time to find transportation. They allowed me to take my own car because I would drive out. We'd be driving in Woodland Hills in California and Westlake is in Paramount's downtown. Uh, Then we shot out in the desert. And that's a half hour, 45 minute drive to get out there. And I would... uh, a funny story was one day I was, uh, well, I had two locations. I think it was, might have been Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and they were a couple miles apart, but it's shooting out in the desert area. And there was, uh, I pulled off from one location, started the next one, and all of a sudden I'm driving and driving and driving. I'm thinking, oh my God, I bet I'm lost. Uh, so I pulled over to the side of the road where a man was watering the, the grass. <laughs> and I said, and I rolled my window down and said, "Excuse me, uh, can you uh, tell me where such and such is?" And he says, "Yeah, it's uh, right down the road here. About four, just keep going." And as I pulled away, I looked at the sign, and it was a correctional facility. This guy <laughs> jumped in the car with me and said, "Let's go!" <laughs> and I go, "Oh, yeah." So, um, I would, I, if we had a big day, if we were if we were going down the promenade in uh, in Deep Space Nine on the, on the spaceship um, or just a day where maybe they wanted 25 Klingons. We would start at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we couldn't start earlier than 4. So everybody would meet there at 4 o'clock. I would prep it all up so I didn't have to get there until 5. And then I always found a good makeup artist to give them the responsibility of that. And then I would get there and make sure everything's going and uh, uh, everybody has all their supplies and everything. And they had to be at the set around seven o'clock. So the makeups would take uh, usually about three hours. Some of the really heavy ones, other ones less time. And uh, like Vulcans and Romulans were uh, less time. And they would, uh, lunch would be earlier. Lunch might be 12, one o'clock. We have six hours in between uh being called in and being able to have lunch. Uh, and then filming would go until, and we don't get breaks, really. Um, that's what the big, there's a strike now, you know, and this is what it's all about, yeah. is, is the hours that people have to work. Um, they could shoot till eight o'clock at night, or if they wanted to keep going for some reason till 10, the only problem with that is the actors all had 10 hours in between 10 or 12 was so but they had to have their hours uh the crew you don't the crew minimum or the maximum hours the, the crew member was eight which means getting out of the studio driving home maybe getting something to eat get a shower go to bed and being back at the studio eight hours later from the time that you literally walked off the lot. Yes. It's not enough. And I, I kind of, I agree with him. It's not enough time to basically to tuck somebody into bed or to, uh, uh, to get an eat, get a shower, say hello, get some sleep and get up again. So by Friday, people were exhausted. Of course. And Friday was always the night we would shoot till midnight. Yeah. So then everybody spent the weekend Recovering. This is what the strike's about now. And it's, uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I had some, now you're not going to believe this. On Next Generation, I had one extra helper. And the Werner Kepler. And Werner would help me sculpt and, and help make everybody up on the Next Generation. And having to come in early, because I mean, when you're in there at four o'clock, you're in before the electricians are and everybody else is. And you're the last ones out because you got to clean people up. I had several weeks of 80 hours a week. Uh, By the end of the week, I was so totally exhausted that several times, if Marion didn't come and pick me up and leave my car there, bring me back the next day, I mean, I couldn't drive. Uh, They would have one of the drivers take me home and just leave my car there. 80 hours is a long time to work it's uh, and it, it isn't it's like you want to say under the under the conditions that the, the studios are um, it's it's not conducive to having a family if you're single you make very good money but you spend a lot of time and you're exhausted on the weekends if you're you know especially doing Star Trek but I had people that um, they did it and I did it too, so it's uh, it was very tough. Now, these science fiction movies are very tough to do on you, and hence the people are <laughs> they're revolting now. It's 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 a it's such a rewarding thing to do a really good makeup and then see it on camera as as now. I mean, I did. I had some of the best makeup artists I could find in Hollywood, and Oscar-winning makeup artists would call me and say, uh, "I just finished." Uh, doing uh, Benjamin Button and uh, I don't have anything coming up for a couple months do you have any work sure come on over i mean literally the biggest names in hollywood and the makeup departments would would come and work for me for for a day or a couple of weeks you know so the the work is is i want to say motion picture quality not that they they people have delineated where there's tv movie which means it's kind of crappy and thrown on, but it's that Star Trek was Star Trek was everything had to be motion picture quality or it didn't get it to the set. And I would literally go to the set then after everybody was all done, and I would go and look at absolutely every extra and every person. And if there was something wrong with them, I'd find out who did it and I'd bring them in and have have fix it. And then come the afternoon, uh, we'd get the call sheets in. And I'd have to start preparing the next day. Okay. We have actors. We have a bunch of actors at this time and this time. This I'm going to need so many makeup artists for this and so many for this and so many for this. Uh, and then Valerie would get on the phone and we would call the union and see who was available. And she would fill those slots up with, with people and the times they're supposed to be there. And everybody came to work knowing they had no idea when they're going home. They're just coming there to work. And then they would work a lot of times until seven eight o'clock but if i was going to need them to come like it was on a cardassian day and i needed to have eight of them back to do eight cardassians the next morning the cardassians were going to get their time to rest because they were actors but my people couldn't so i literally had a cleanup crew i would hire a crew that would come in about four o'clock in the afternoon the makeup artists would give them all the stuff that they're doing. They were good makeup artists, though, but maybe not the ones that did all the little fine, wonderful details, but they could do it. They could keep glued in, keep painted, and they would stay with them until the end of the night, and then they would clean them up. So uh, it happened, I would say, but most of the time that I had a cleanup crew coming in to take over, especially with a board. Oh, my gosh. That was a lot of work. How much, uh, I'm curious
0: just how much time actually went in, especially something like the Borg, which is such a complex operation,
1: I imagine. like On first contact, it was like five hours. Oof. Yeah, that means sitting there getting made up. In fact, they had two sets of Borg. They had a set that, were the, the no way they were going to get their time in between, a different set that would come in in the morning. Megapartists would come in because they had to put a bulb cap on them first and then put all the implants on them. So many times where we could, the the head would be taken off and the edges of it be cleaned up and dried. The cleanup crew did this. And then that was set there and uh, dried out and reused the next day. Hmm. Uh, The frangi heads also, we found, could be used several times uh, before they would self destruct. And the lizard heads from uh, uh, Enterprise, uh, those we could use. It, It took an entire day to paint one of those and then we had uh, the the uh, the little spikes coming out of their heads were actually porcupine quills that we made molds on and then when we would cast them we would put a wire into the mold with it and then cast the rubber into it and close it up and bake it and then we could punch it through uh one of the makeup artists i had with me his name was Steve Weber, who was past day, wonderful. He was actually a dancer for Bob Fosse, if you're familiar with that name, and uh, broke his leg and wasn't able to dance again. But Steve was an excellent make, makeup artist and a puppeteer. And in working in makeup on stage, there's a lot of little tricks and stuff. So Steve would actually come up with little tricks sometime to, this, to save time. And uh, he knew how to, if we're going to put something into a head um, we were doing uh, like a, it wasn't a commercial, but it was at that time, those games and things that we were putting together and they had a Gorn and we made a Gorn head to put, to put for an actor to put on, but there was no time or money to make the, the face work and they weren't going to pay to have opticals done. So uh, Steve figured out a way from the theater that they had that he made a mouthpiece that glued into it and he could put your hand up inside of it and he could make the go and talk. You know, it wasn't a full seat. It was just only the head that you could see. And he was doing that for fun because of his puppet shows that he used to do. And I walked into the lab and he's doing that. And I, uh, I said, Steve, um, if I can work it out, can you go and do this on the uh, the video? Sure. So we did. We hired him to go to the video to literally go and puppeteer it, just this head. So <laughs> uh, an actor it wouldn't have looked at an actor would look like this, you know. But Steve was able to do it.
0: I'm curious. Do you have a favorite design that you've done? Yeah. You have to pick a favorite alien.
1: Yeah. Is it David? Is it uh, Data's daughter? The little guy, the little gold man in Data's daughter that looks like an Oscar. Mm. Uh, Leonard Crowfoot. An actor could not have done it. Leonard Crowfoot was a ballerina and dancer. He had muscles that you can't believe where muscles grow. He could stand on one foot and not shake or do anything, which in the show they do that. It's a, there's a scene where he's standing there and he supposedly raises one foot and they unscrew the foot and there's lights in there. Michael put all the lights in this foot that we did. And Leonard's able to stand there on this one foot and hold, just hold the other one and not move. Uh, the way his makeup was designed, though, he wore contact lenses. so he, And they were they were gold lenses that he could hardly see out of. There was no nostrils on the nose, there were no ears, and the mouth was down here. And he wore this, and it, and it, on top of, we we built a big diaper for him that took away all his, you know, parts, and then also a chest piece, and uh, and then we painted his entire body gold, so a bronzy color, and he would work. He'd almost have to work like every other day. He couldn't work every day because there was so much. And clean him up at night, and getting him into makeup before working. That was really my all-time kind of like favorite one. It isn't a, and I also loved the lizard heads from uh, Enterprise. That, the the there was no two alike. There was a red one, and there was a green one, and there was a blue one, and there was a brown one, and then, you know they were they were super. But I liked everything. There's only one makeup. I hate to even bring this up. <laughs> In in the entire time of Star Trek that I absolutely hated. I've watched the show once and I literally could not bring myself to ever watch it again. It was called The Most Toys. Uh, there was a, a, you know, a midget that was supposed to play the major role. And in the middle of shooting, he tried to commit suicide. So uh, he, he couldn't finish. He couldn't finish. Uh, and sorry to say, he finally made it. A month later, he finally did it, tried it again, and succeeded. So they hired another actor who didn't want to wear the alien face, that, uh, which would have fit, because this, this little person had a, a normal size head. And uh, there was a woman in the show who was supposed to be an alien woman. I kind of made her face. So it was kind of like flat. You might start remembering this. And I also had two antenna that came out of her forehead that weaved into a very alien hairstyle. And she hated it. She hated the makeup. And she's a woman that was in other shows. You've seen her and, you know. Little House in the Prairie or, you know, other things, whatever. That, that's not one of them, though. No, so. Um, so she went up to Roddenberry and told him how much she hated looking this way. So she wanted to take the antenna off. What was the antenna? The only thing that made her look alien, really alien, were the antenna. So Gene called me and he says, you know, I just, because he had a lilt to his voice. I just take off whatever she wants. I said, oh, okay. So I took those off. She goes to the set. Oh, and she didn't like her hairdo. So they said, just put it down. She had a hairdo that probably looked like the 50s. Um, but this flat face made her look not like an alien, but more like somebody who's had a very traumatic accident mm. and healed that way really bad. They actually wrote a line into the script and into the story which is still there saying that she had an accident because uh, of this look so it's like but that's it wasn't our fault it's no it's it's hers you know ego instead of going for it uh only only had one other man that came in a very good looking actor and he came into my lab and i said well you know you're going to be an alien he goes what Nobody had told him. Now, usually casting is supposed to tell him this. Never told him. And he says, I'm not doing that. You know, he wanted to be a handsome Robin Hood. And so uh, I said, well, uh, let me make a phone call. So and I talked to him and I said, fine, send him back. We'll recast. So I, I did have people that would have claustrophobia. Okay. And... That way you say, fine, either let them go or they would say, you know, I'll fight my way through it because it's like, it's a job. I use the money and stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of times, and would try to maybe give them a little bit more airway or something on it, you know, but uh, I would say in general, it was 99.99% trouble-free the whole time. No. People wanted to do it, actors wanted
0: to do it. Uh, 18 years at, at the same told tele- essentially the same show, you know, of Star Trek.
1: Right? It, it was 18
0: yeah. years in your same office. I mean, that's that's longer than that's uh, longer than kids are in school, basically. I mean, it's <laughs>
1: it's uh, you know, well, it, was all, a whole career. it was a whole it career. It was a whole career. Yeah, I had my whole career at Universal, which was one, and then I had all that time. Um, Picking up with Stallone until Star Trek, where I was with Elizabeth Taylor. I was in Niro. I was with Liza Minnelli. I was, did, I was doing movies and traveling all over the world. And then when Star Trek came along, because I had a, a young Mackenzie, my youngest daughter, uh, I wanted to stay home and watch her grow up. Okay. And my older kids were starting into their teens, so I it gave me the chance to stay home. You know, maybe exhausted and. I had to go cook in a chili cook-off on the weekend, but you know, drag yourself together and you go do that and you go to sleep early Saturday night, you know, get ready for Monday. What was was that last day like, or or even just the
0: last season after you knew Enterprise was gonna be canceled and and knew that that your time was coming to an end on, on Star Trek? Like, what was that experience like? You wish you could tell them all that this Alliance will give birth to the Federation.
1: I think I'm ready to talk to Captain Picard. I should have done it a long time ago. So I guess we're through here. I guess we are. Computer? program. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission. To explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before well you know to me it was it was 18 years yeah if it had been five or six or something, you might feel bad. But I had been doing this for 18 years. And we had three more years to go if if we had finished out Enterprise. And Rick Berman called me and he said, I've got bad news. We've been canceled. And it was because the ratings had dropped down. And the shows were costing like $2 million an episode, which is cheap in today's and we already had between all of them we had like 625 shows in the can between all four uh, seasons. So they had plenty they can and they true they're still running today, you know so it uh, I said, you know, okay <laughs> and I called my wife and said, the shows the show's been canceled. We're gonna shoot a couple more episodes you know to finish out enterprise for the fourth season, but then it's over with. And then I had, I was given six weeks to close up. So it was kind of like a taper down because I had the moles to throw away. Uh, in fact, the man bought them from Germany and he shipped them all to Germany and they're still sitting in Germany. Uh, wardrobe did that. All of us had time to, I want to say, kind of cool off and pack up and pack up my office and bring my library home and, and everything. <laughs> and then finally the last day of the uh six weeks came along and uh because i told Marion, i'll i'll call you when i'm ready to come home and the psychologist says okay i'm ready come get me and she came she picked me and she's she's worse i mean i'm not bad at all she's going how do you feel oh my god you know are you okay everything i'm going yeah let's go have thai food (laughs) and it was it was like okay it's over it was a great run i really enjoyed it so uh, and and i'm all still friends with dan curry and uh if bob blackman nice you know see him it's um it, it it's it was a, a family that bonded you know, like your own family and it kind of splits up and your brother lives over here and his sister moves back east or something it's uh, it was like the big family that uh, it, but then you, you still had the conventions going so we all meet at the conventions, and everybody knows everybody. Marina knows what Michael Dorn is doing, and you know, they, they, and it's, a, it's a big hug. I did Gates' makeup. I was her personal makeup artist, and I was um, uh, the Diaz on Next Gen. Uh, and I'd pick up somebody else, Jonathan Frakes, or LeVar, or Will Wheaton, you know, if uh, if the makeup artist wasn't available. And then I had Terry Farrell. She was my personal charge on Deep Space Nine. I spotted her, I don't know, 400 and some times. <laughs> and uh, Chakotay on uh, uh, Voyager, he was over five, like 550 times. I hand-painted that tattoo on his forehead. Wow. And I've done that at Creations on stage. And I spotted Terry on stage at Creations. So those are those are just big parties to everybody to hug and kiss and say hello, you know? Did you ever just
0: pitch like, like Robert Beltran, just, just get the actual tattoo. Just, just put it (laughs) on. We'll have it removed after the run, but just.
1: Well, that would have been nice. I have somebody almost the boxer. His is pretty close to Chakotay's tattoo, but I literally could do it in my sleep. I did it so many times on his forehead, but I had to start, and it was, it was based on freckles and little bumps on his face, on his face. And I, had, I started by making a line here and swooping around, and then we had the three lines that went back. And it's like, if I tried do, starting it anywhere else, I couldn't do it. Yeah. It had to literally flow now to, to come up with this tattoo. I get, had a, a book of tattoos from the Philippines, from Thailand, from American Indians. And so his was a combination uh, of uh, tattoos and swirls from different people. And we we started the first test was a full face. Mm. Uh, And that would have taken forever. And then we tried a half face. And that was like, "Eh, it's still going to take time. So that's how it wound up being just this quarter of a face, which worked really well. And Robert Robert didn't mind it. And you become good friends with it. I was also on Voyager. I was Kate McGrews. I made uh, Kate up all the time. And we had very interesting conversations every morning. Patrick Stewart and I are still good friends. I've given him trophies and he's given me trophies. It was, <laughs> it's funny. And in, in my book, he wrote the introduction for me for it. So it's uh, really, I don't know if you, you ever saw it, it's called Makeup Man. From Rocky to Star Trek, the amazing yep. creations yep. of Hollywood's Michael Westmore. I wasn't going to put any Star Trek in the book to begin with. I thought I'll do a separate book for Star Trek, and uh, the publisher said, "No, you've got to do Star Trek." So, but I put the, in Star Trek. I put interesting things in, like Cardassians, the Borg, uh, the Vulcans. I didn't want to start writing about Patrick or Jonathan or Kate. There's so much of them. But these are the, what I have in my book are the, how it was built, how it was created in, in the characters that did it. So it's,
0: it was fun. I wonder if you could give uh, some thoughts on, because to me, I look at, you, at your work on Star Trek and I look at that kind of era of, mm-hmm. you know, makeup, prosthetic effects and, and creature design. Um, never been topped in my opinion and and even today with all of the cgi and all of the uh, technological advancements that have streamlined things you know 3d printing blah, blah 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 um oddly it seems less imaginative today from my point of view like can you talk a bit about just your own views on the industry as it stands right now and and your field in terms of like lots of money in TV, but uh, you know, I don't, like Star Trek today doesn't have as much aliens in it, it seems like compared to... Well,
1: you know, a lot of this depends now. Had they, when they started it, had they called me, had they called the people that were there, it would have come back with the same look. Sure. all of a sudden, you know, they well, that was not TV, but the J.J. Abrams came in. J.J. Abrams was not a Star Trek fan. He was a... Uh, the other one, <laughs> for a fan of. Yeah. So it, uh, the people they hired in production, the people they hired to design what they're doing today, they're all different. And it seems like, and I've heard this so many times, and it, and it happened with me too when I came in, was that I wasn't interested in what anybody did before because I, I knew I could improve on it. But everybody feels the same way is that they, whoever they're bringing in that's new wants to improve on it. And if you don't do it, you know, just for instance, and I know the man that designed it, and he's not the one that gave the final, like the Klingons in the new one. Discovery. Look nothing like, you know, Um, and they're supposed to be pre. So it's like, they're going from there to Michael Dorn, you know? it doesn't work out. There could have been changes, but they should have been subtle changes. And uh, at all the conventions, people ask me about that. And it's like, it's the first thing that comes up. And I go, "Mm -hmm." you know, I I know that the guy that drew the design, but he didn't give the approval on it. There was a producer somewhere that that did that. Uh, But that's what you find now. Those are all new people, even writers and everything. And so it, it can have a different feel to it, you know? So were they right? Were they wrong? <laughs> so, is the show, are people watching it? I don't know. I don't watch it, so I don't know. But some people love it, you know? But it, it's it's good. It's a good sci-fi show. But can you call it Star Trek? I don't know. I know uh, so many of the characters don't follow through from our 18 years. They've done different things to them. Um, little things that, whether they're accepted or not, you know. But I all of a sudden, I'll see it and I go, whoop, (laughs) you know. Yeah.
0: So during your career, you must have had a chance to mentor a lot of other makeup artists. I imagine they're all going out and winning their own Oscars now.
1: Yeah, they have. In fact, I would hire on a yearly basis about 100 people. And I one, one year I actually took an ad out in one of the union magazines and thanked everybody for it. My first person, he was 17 years old. He finally got, I had to be 21 to, to be able to work at the studio. Finally when he was 21 and I had started uh, Next Generation and I brought him with me on Next Generation. Actually, I got him into the union. I did Masters of the Universe, which was a ball. It was really fun. And I hired him when he was 17 years old to run the rubber for me because he had a lab at his house. He was just—he was a makeup junkie and loved makeup. And his name was Jerry Quist. Jerry finally uh, went out, and he's been Bruce Willis's makeup artist for decades. So Jerry did okay. Bought a couple of homes in Burbank. So <laughs> uh, he's—you uh, know—a nice man. But he was my first first apprentice, and other ones, and and people have thanked me. all the time what I taking it in another direction uh, the one thing that I remember that I really enjoyed the work was great the creativity was great the accolades were great And you can see behind me there on the wall the plaques I've got 42 Emmy nominations and there I've got them all hanging back didn't have another room in the house so I hung them here (laughs) in this little room where I write Um, uh, and half, half of them are Star Trek and half of them are, are other shows, but you have to, in the union, for your pension and for your medical insurance, you have to say, you have to get, get, uh, gather so many hours per, uh, per half now. Now you have to get 400 hours every six months. For some people, that's difficult to do, but they would come to me and say, I only need three more hours. Can you help me? I would hire them. I don't know how many people. I helped them uh, save their pension, got a house payment for them, whatever, uh, helping And so, I mean, in this day, you know, you. so many people say that the best time in their life was working on Star Trek. Uh, not only for the creativity that you got to do, but for the uh, companionship, the camaraderie that, that, that went on. Um, I didn't let things fester. I'm I'm not really a, a mean boss or anything, but you know I used a velvet hammer to try to keep everything uh, on a easy pace, and it did work. There was only a couple times I had to fire somebody, and it was their own fault. Uh, you know, nothing that uh, nothing that I was mad at them for doing. And I only I only have two instances where I ever even got mad in the 18 years. Uh, I mean, really, really, I want to say, for the world, really pissed. <laughs> and, uh, and again, it wasn't my fault. And uh, it, uh, it all worked out, though. But uh, helping people. And it's, it's like all the way. I still, I still get calls today. Some actress wanted to get her wig refunded. I, I haven't been in the business since 2006, basically. But I still get calls. To, you know, for advice and I'm glad to give it. It's, you know, and then people have, and, I, and calls are like I, Uncle Purse did for me and uh, they have a problem and, you know, how do you work it out? So I enjoy that. And
0: what has retirement looked like for you? You wrote a book, you're still working on some other things. I'm,
1: I'm right. Well, I did, I did a lot of conventions. Yes. Did a lot of conventions, including cruises. And that was uh, that got to the point where we can't believe it, it got boring. <laughs> uh, well, Mary and I don't drink that much, right. but we would, we would love to go, we have have a nice dinner and go back to the room and open the door up and watch the breeze and the ocean go by, you know. And then I'd give a couple lectures on the boat and I would take my Oscar with me and uh, let everybody have a picture taken to with beat me. away the fans. Yes, I understand. <laughs> yeah, it uh, when we got done, we would leave the big uh, room, and for those that wanted to meet somewhere else, and uh, had the Oscar, and each one could take their picture with it. It was it, it was fun. It was just, a, but it's a pain in the ass when you want things done. You know, <laughs> get your luggage and take it off and whatever. But it's it was it was it was interesting to do. I would mainly the cruises out of Florida or up, up down the California coast here in Mexico, but I that. And, and writing on my book, and I used to like to go out and garden and do a lot of work that, but I I don't do that much of it anymore. Uh, it's like starting on my new book and which don't save your taxes. You only have to save them for so many years and then get rid of them because I have saved all my taxes since Star Trek started in 1987. <laughs> I had... Uh, upstairs and and had they're all boxed and they're all up there and they're basically dumpers. You might go through and find the papers or something like that. I have to go through every one of them though and then get rid of them because it's no fun. Now I've got every one of those boxes to go through and uh, I also saved every script I ever did. So you figure every season of every show I've got a box with a script in it. So wow! Yeah, what am I going to do with them? I don't know. Uh, Santa Barbara wanted them uh, for a collection, and uh, I don't know auction, whatever. Do I don't know? Going to have to find out something to do with them.
0: You could probably get a fortune for those.
1: I don't know. You know, they sell at the conventions for like ten bucks a piece. Yeah, but it would be your particular script. It would. Oh yeah, I could. I still could sign them. to Yeah. And uh, I had notes in them and things like that. So it was interesting. The Michael
0: Westmore private collection.
1: It's it's very, very expensive material. <laughs> I just want to get them out of here. <laughs> Can you imagine what that weighs? There's I've got a, a like a shelf in the garage and it's all packed in there. All these boxes of taxes and all these scripts and everything are all in there. So one day, and I figured I better do it now before it's left to somebody else to do it. Well, they didn't just all get dumped if that happens. <laughs> but now, Star Trek was, um, I would say, out of my whole career. Stallone was fun to travel around with because uh, I met him when he was just an up and coming actor. It was uh, We were in New York. One time, when Star Trek, would we were off for, for two months between seasons. And Sly called me and asked me if I would go to New York with him on a junket because he's being interviewed by everybody in the world for. Rambo or something. I did the first Rambo, and he had his entourage with him, which were all new people. Didn't know any of them, and I realized very quickly they're all living in fear of him, like he's going to toss them out the window or something. And they came in. there's one more interview to do with Siskel and Ebert, and they're saying, "Okay, we're ready for him down there." And he, Sly was in the bedroom. And I looked around, and like, nobody's moving. And I said, isn't anybody going to go tell him they're ready for him? Oh, no, he'll come out when, they, when, when he's ready. Well, we, I had friends to have dinner with uh, that evening. I went over, opened the door. I said, Sly, they're ready for you. He said, oh, okay, I got to go. I hung up the phone. And I turned around, and these people were all <laughs> wondering when I was going to be killed. You know, but it's funny because I I literally met him uh, when he was 27 years old, and I still have you know his cast of his face and everything, and it's uh, and then I stayed with him for years. he wanted me to quit Star Trek and come back and be with him, but I, you know how many of those movies can you make? And he's doing just repeats of Rocky and Rambo and stuff, you know. He's making that's how he's making his his money now, but uh, the nothing creative in it. I'm I wasn't about to ever leave Star Trek to go to uh, go anywhere else. Well, on that note, we have we have kept you here uh, for quite some time. You've been very generous today. How long have um,
0: you been? <laughs> it's been a, I think coming up on an hour and a half now. <laughs>
1: oh, well, that's that's UCLA was five hours, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's yeah, just it's UCLA that. and. Uh, uh, the Academy motion picture Academy. They, we did five, six hours of just, but they, they had a script to go to movie after movie, after movie. You know?
0: So, mm. um, are you on
1: uh, any social media
0: or anything like that? That fans can, uh, touch base with you on it.
1: So, uh, by the book is the moral of the story.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it has a lot of fun stories in it and that's what I tried to do with it. And I read a lot of uh, biographies and, uh, the one that I was literally laughed all at George Hamilton wrote one which was amazing and I'm going this is how I want mine to be I want to have it light I want to be fun and and have it segmented where you're not I, I mean De Niro's a long piece and Elizabeth Taylor is and Sly is but I spent the most time with them uh, and but but fun times you know things that happened along the way at, uh, I remember one time with uh, Elizabeth Taylor uh, she asked me, I, I was her entourage. They, they would always expect her to come in with entourages. So one day she says, do you want any chili? I said, sure. So she sent, She had a personal driver there. She sent him out to uh, Chasen's. To, and she used to have this chili sent to her all over the world when she was working. Went and got it. And she said, uh, I'll chop up some onion while he's gone. So she's chopping an onion up. Sammy Davis Jr. walks in and sits down and she says, Sammy, this is Mike. And never, you know, stay if you want to have some chili. But this is the way she was. This was amazing, The amazing, amazing woman, one of the nicest ones uh, you can imagine. And she knew everybody in the world. She used to live across the street from my uncle Wally in Beverly Hills. And Wally was one of Paramount. And, uh, but I've, my career has been literally rubbing shoulders with these people. And it's not like you're rubbing shoulders with a celebrity or something. Uh, it's a person. Because we would carry on. Kate, Kate McGrew and I carried on conversations I don't even want to repeat to people. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> just personal and fun, you know, family and things that are going on. Uh, Stallone was too. Sly was uh, I almost felt like a bodyguard walking with him because the people were, everybody's trying to get a hold of him, touch him and scream at him. And and De Niro was, I want to say a chameleon. This man could disappear into a crowd, would be in a car in New York and say, I want to get out here. And after we cleaned him up at the end of the day, after Raging Bull, and he would literally disappear into a crowd of people and nobody would even turn around and look. It was, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Marsha Mason, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Uh, she was uh, married to a big writer. And I remember Marsha, she was the point where if she said, I feel like a cup of coffee, who else wants one? So she'd call, you know, like the AD over and say, instead of saying, you know, I would like a cup of coffee. You know, it's like, we need eight cups of coffee. <laughs> you know, it was uh, another, there's, there's a lot of, lot of these people are just people. You know, once you get underneath the skin of them and everything, and that's the way, you know, my career has has been. There's, uh, I only had a couple people I didn't, I had problems with Betty Davis, but my uncle used to do her makeup, all her movies, and they had an affair, I think. So, aside from that, you know, she was a pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, I, Uh... I caught her at the end of her career. Uh,
0: and and the name of the book is is what again for the listeners out there the what the what's the name of the book again for the makeup listeners man.
1: out there the makeup man
0: the makeup man, makeup man. and that yeah. is uh... And i didn't name it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fantastic um well thank you very much for joining us
1: today this is been been wonderful so i I'm, I'm sure you've got enough there to put together <laughs> into a show <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah, absolutely. We we uh, met. No, um I I had fun spending time with you.
0: Oh, thank so glad. you so
1: much. <laughs> And thanks yeah. Lisa for setting this up. This was a lot of fun. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad. Lisa keep writing.
0: I will. Okay. <laughs> uh and for the uh listeners out there, I want to say thank you for joining us. Uh we'd like to thank our sound engineer Bill Ritter as well as our executive producers Mark Altman and Dean Devlin and our producer Natalie Muscali. Um if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter and at Inglorious Experts on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Um, so, for myself, Peter, and Lisa Clink, uh, thanks for being here, and keep on trekking ingloriously, of course.